Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there. Welcome to this quick intro. I don't do as many intros as I used to, uh, but this is a quick one because there's a couple of things. One, I hope you're doing well. As always, that is the most important, and thanks for checking out the show. Um, two, over the last few weeks, listener numbers have started to rise again, and I think everybody just is always looking for new podcasts to listen to. This one isn't a new one. It's around four years, but that's okay. People are finding it now as well as staying with it, so thank you for that. Great to see. On top of that, the book club that we do every couple of weeks, every second Tuesday, Tuesday night book club, uh, first one of the year a couple of weeks ago and we had probably our biggest turnout ever and nearly uh, it's 80% of those that joined were newbies and it's going really well and for the next one that's coming uh, probably shortly after this podcast the next Tuesday night book club we have a bunch of new people joining and just really a quick message to say sign up join it every two weeks if you want to listen live you can um you can join for free there's a link with this uh, show notes on this or it's on the website and you can listen to the book review from one of the members of the club every two weeks and you can ask questions and it's very informal and it's great crack and it's really something i look forward to uh and it's hopefully going to keep going and all is welcome, are welcome even. So hopefully we'll see you at that. Wanted to call that one out. And then in a couple of weeks, I would say, I'll probably land on episode 200 and I have a guest lined up for that. And I'm really excited to talk to this lady talking all about uh, the brain and why we do what we do. New York Times bestseller and um, yeah, fascinating experience that is coming with that one i'm sure haven't done the interview yet but i'm really looking forward to doing it um so yeah that'll be good coming very soon this episode with vanessa klein an executive talent recruiter uh we talk about that but we talk about a lot more than that really fascinating interests uh, in in her career journey so far and some lessons learned and very open and honest and you know, in a word or a hyphenated word, self-awareness is predominant and extremely important, as I've said in the past. So without further ramble, I will let you enjoy that one with Vanessa. Hope to see you at the book club and I hope you enjoy this one. Take care. Good luck. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of 1% Better. And as has the case has been for a while, I've been interviewing a number of really interesting guests from over the pond uh, in, in the US of A. And, and this one continues. And I'm really looking forward to talking to my guest tonight or, or today in, in uh, your part of the world, Vanessa Klein. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about your career, which predominantly focuses around recruitment, uh, hiring top level, C-level candidates and talent and everything around that. I'm really looking forward to it. And I know you have a blog post out recently on your on your site around hiring uh, women into the C-suite. So I'm looking forward to digging into that and, and, and learning about the challenges and, and how to how to go about that, because I know more than half the listeners are uh, are certainly female. So that that's going to be hopefully interesting for them. I'm excited to talk about it. Very, very good. So 
right now we're going through a global pandemic as we were talking about just offline and everybody's life is a bit different i suppose what is life like for you right now what is your current role what are you working on what is your focus areas in uh, in your career at the moment well, even during global pandemic, my role has has remained the same, although I'm housebound rather than traveling to meet clients and candidates. But I am a partner at Caliber One, which is an executive search firm that we're headquartered in the UK, actually, and mm-hmm. we have offices across the United States and we're a boutique, you know, white glove executive search firm. And my areas of focus are the C-suite. So CEOs, CMOs. Uh, chief human resources officers as well, and chief operating officers is primarily where I spend my mo- most of my time and working with companies, uh, anything that's tech enabled so and consumer facing. So think retail or health and wellness, anything along those lines. Mm, very, very interesting. And given that we've all had to revert, revert to working from home over the last 10 months or so, was it something you thought you could do successfully beforehand from from home as much and how has the adjustment been i'd love to know your experiences how you've continued to be able to be productive doing it remotely continuing to be productive can be somewhat of a challenge in that i find working at home all the time there's no uh, barrier between professional and personal so like so many others i've got children running in into the office or, you know, I can hear uh, the scream for mommy from downstairs and I have to drop what I'm doing and go see who hit who and why. And so from that, from that aspect, it's been a little bit more challenging, but I think what's um, been nice is that everyone else is working at home too. So there's, and there's much more of an appetite to meet via zoom rather than just having phone calls. So I do get to see people, which has been really helpful because I think like so many others, it's hard to be in isolation and only see the familiar faces of your family and not ever anybody else. So uh, thank goodness for Zoom, (laughs) I would say. And other than that, my job really hasn't changed, except typically I go on site with a new client and really get to know the company and see the office and the space and meet a variety of people you know, in a day. And that is, is not happening. And, and I think that's unfortunate. Mm. And just even from your own development and how you've managed to navigate and adapt to the working from home fully, is there any tips or tricks that you've found working really well for you that helps you get out of the, you know, family life into the work mode? Is there anything you uh, do to, to kind of help adjust? Well, my to help adjust, my family has been pretty respectful. So it's only the occasional um, child kind of outburst that happens. So the biggest tip I have is get a room with a door. You know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have an office space that I can close off. But I talk to so many candidates who are at their kitchen table and there's constant distractions. And if there's any place that can corner off for yourself, whether it's a, a garage and a temporary setup there, I think it's that's probably the most helpful. And that it's okay to have uh, your bed in the background. I talk to five people a day from their bedrooms, you know, and there's, I think there used to be kind of a self-consciousness around that. You, know, you don't want people to see that you're in your bedroom. Well, either let them see or get a great backdrop 
Mm-hmm. The backdrops definitely have come in handy. And it's interesting, I talked to a, another leader uh, nine months ago, early on in the pandemic, and she was talking about coaching CFOs, CEOs, um, and now that they had moved to Zoom, it was about uh, some of the stuff that they would have in the background, like you mentioned, the bed, or they were self-conscious about having pictures of their family or, or, or kind of pictures of films they liked or whatever that might be to show a, a vulnerable side or a more human side. And she was like, no, you you leave that there because you have to show show up. H- how do you advise some potential candidates and, and those that are going through the hiring process to uh, you know, to, to kind of present themselves, how that has changed over the last while? The, the My biggest piece of advice is it doesn't matter what's in the background as long as it's cleaned, meaning you can be in front of a bed, but make sure the bed is made. You know, don't make sure it's not an unmade bed. Um, so other than that, my biggest piece of advice is to inform anybody in your house that you are going to be on a Zoom video conference. And I have had the unfortunate situation of having top candidates, and it's happened more than once, have things going on in the background because their family wasn't aware of what was going on. Uh, is a nude spouse walked by in the middle of a, of a board meeting where the candidate was interviewing with the board. Uh, which actually brought into question, is this person at the right seniority level if they didn't think that through? Mm-hmm. You know, that we're looking for somebody on our executive leadership team who is thoughtful and strategic. And what does that say about you if you didn't think think ahead and say, I better let everybody know that this is what I'm doing and I have to be in a common space. Mm-hmm. So that would be the the biggest bit of of help i could offer hopefully nobody in my background walks past nude in the next 40 minutes or so i'd be surprised (laughs) if that was the case but it would be very entertaining if it happened though thankfully this is not work it's more of a a passion project as i said no that's interesting how has the i guess maybe profile of candidates changed from a an employer's perspective since the the move to remote have they have they shifted or adjusted the competencies or any of the skills that might be more attractive as a result of that? No, at least in my, with my, the clients that I work with and the new clients that I'm working with now, none of, none of that has changed. What, what has somewhat changed and a bit surprisingly, not as much as I would have expected is location of candidates. So, you know, usually, especially at this level, you want your executive team close together. And so we're always mandated as a firm to find candidates that are either willing to relocate or currently based wherever headquarters is. And I had expected that that would become much, much more flexible, given that everyone has been successfully working remotely. And I would say about 30% of our clients have loosened the requirement that the person be based where they are. But that's it. Uh, you know, I thought it would be a much larger, I thought at least 50% would be much more open to having people working remotely. Mm. And that isn't, that isn't necessarily the case. Mm, that's definitely um, an interesting one. And, and I suppose, do you see a lot of, you know, in job contracts that, okay, you're working from home now, but as soon as things get back to normal, that the expectation is to get physically back in an office a lot of the time. Yeah. Yes, I am seeing that, although there seems to be a much bigger appetite for a flexible schedule 
than there was before. So the idea that, yes, we want you to be here, but you don't necessarily have to be in the office every day when things do go back to normal. The expectation is that is the number I hear is three days a week. Mm. Okay, very good. No, that's good. Good context to know, and this was good for people listening if they're you know in that process and what what they could be looking for, or asking for, or or, or maybe not, uh, or what they shouldn't be asking for. Um, so talent and you know executive hiring executives, and really interested in how that becomes your career. Where did where did it all begin? Is that something that when you were going through high school or growing up, it was a passion or an interest in people? You know, they're definitely an interest in people, but I would say very rarely, and I've interviewed many recruiters and partners at search firms, it, do they have a clear career trajectory into executive search? It seems to be something that we've all stumbled into. And mm. in my case, I had been working at a large national nonprofit called the Wilderness Society mm. in the U.S. Right. and working with um, major donors. So essentially fundraising. And I had a friend who was an executive recruiter at a boutique firm in Berkeley, California. And she had called me uh, to meet for coffee. And we were talking about what she was doing. And she said, you know, we're hiring a recruiter and we have a couple of nonprofit clients that are very different outside of the scope of the, the clients we usually have, which is technology and consumer packaged goods. And she said, would you want to come in and, and meet the president of, of the firm and maybe you'd be interested. And at that point, I had no idea what a recruiter did or what the expectations were. And I, I met the, the president and she hired me on the spot and basically just kind of threw me to the wolves. Um, and the first search, as it turned out, the nonprofit searches that they had open had closed by the time I joined. And the first search I ever did was a controller for a pharmaceutical company. And now mind you, I didn't know what a controller was or what, you know, any, anything. And I had to get smart fast. And what was exciting was I got to learn about how people fit into an organization. What do they do? What does success look like? What does good look like? How do you, how do you talk to people about what they do? How do you get the information you need? And how do you find people? And I was lucky enough to be at a firm that um, had a really great process and a stellar team. And they taught me, you know, everything. I think it's my foundation was built there. And I was good at it, you know, and it was probably the first thing that I had ever done where I was, I was really good at it. I was getting people to talk to me and figuring out what they were all about and, and being able to talk about about why they were relevant for a particular role for a client. And it just kind of took off from there. Mm. Did you develop your own, you mentioned process, and I know we talked a bit about processes that you're passionate about putting good processes together. Did you develop your own process for dealing with potential clients? And and was that something you were very structured putting together? Or did it kind of naturally evolve? Interested about that. Well, what a great question, because um, actually, I had I, the process I adapted from the first search firm that I ever, ever joined. And I took that to be, this is how you do search. This is how you manage clients. This is how you manage candidates. And um, I had made that this, this the one way you do it. And 
of course, now over the last 16 years or so, uh, that has changed and evolved. And I, I now understand that there are many different ways to get the same result. And that uh, because a process works for somebody, for one person, doesn't mean it's the best for you. And so I think mine has evolved over time and is still evolving. Mm. Did you struggle with that kind of uh, rigidity early on when you were saying, okay, this, this, I suppose, was there any kind of results where it didn't work for you and you realized you had to be a bit more adaptable or, or, or look to kind of flex it or add new things to it? It's just interesting in any kind of stories that stick out, you know, when you realize, okay, I, I need to adjust a little bit here. You know, it wasn't that the the process didn't work. It always worked. And that's why I always used it. This is the process that works. However, what I learned as, and which is so important in terms of diversity of thought to be around people who think differently, who do things differently, I recognized that there were other people that were accomplished and successful that had a completely different process and that their process might be less painful than mine mm. or required less effort than mine did and they got the same result. And so it was more of a flexibility, uh, willingness to adapt to my own process. Not that it wasn't working, there just might be an easier way. Mm -hmm. During that phase, and I guess even to now, how do you reflect on what works, what doesn't? Do you have any practices or ways to say, I'm, I'm, I, you know, that that's a strength or an area that I need to develop? Interested in if there's a, a self development approach to it that you've developed? You know, I, in terms of self development, I identify anything that feels hard or draining is an area that I need to develop in. The area that things that I do daily that are easy or they're quick because I I get it. Um, those are those are the things I do really well, and it's the areas that that feel more difficult to get accomplished that cue me in that here's something that I need to learn a new process around, or I need to focus on figuring out a better way to do it. And those are the areas of development. And that's how I identify them. Mm -hmm. Interesting. As you went through the, the stages of your career, and I know looking on your website, you have a serious client portfolio there. Do you reflect back on any of those engagements or, 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 or contracts or when you were consulting, I know you were with Google and others. Was there any kind of standout experiences that you had that made you feel I've gone to that next level or, or even that you've made a, you know, a mistake or, or a, a learning that you realize, wow, that that's really put me in a better place for, for, you know, the next candidate. Just interested in, in your journey and the, the things that jump out for you there. Yeah, I have I have learned so much through mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't know if that's the norm. If many people do, I tend to learn more through mistakes than I do from things that go well. You know, that doesn't stick with me nearly as much as wow, that that didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And one of the the biggest learnings that I had was actually at Google, where um, I was young. I was so excited to be there and. I had a fantastic foundation in executive search. I had been trained really well and I did really good work. 
And I went into Google with um, a level of confidence that was appropriate, but I didn't have any experience in big company politics or uh, how to work with a vast group of people that each have a different agenda. And frankly, the biggest lesson I learned was that no matter what, never make other people feel stupid. And I know that that sounds basic, but the way that it came out for me was in meetings, I remember being in a meeting and I was running a project and somebody else joined the team who was not running the project, but was older than me. And he said, you know, well, we could do this, this, and this in terms of a strategy. And I immediately said, well, I've already done that. <laughs> you know, let's move on. Right. And over the years, I've, I've come to understand that that's disempowering yeah. to people. And when you're in a large organization and you're working with so many different people, you never want to isolate anyone and you, you always want to collaborate and bring people in. I have another example at, at Google where we had a, a resource available to us that nobody else on the recruiting team I was on had thought to leverage. And I did. And it was smart. It was the right thing to do. But the mistake I made was going directly to that resource and asking them to do something without letting everybody else know on the team that that's what I was going to do, without letting my manager know, hey, this seems like a good idea. Should I go ahead and do this? I just kind of ran with things. And so I learned that um, it's important to bring people along with you. Mm -hmm. That was one of the major... Yeah. What were you going to say, Rob? No, no that, that's, that's a really good couple of examples. And, and what came up for me as I was talking, you were talking through it and I was listening to you, you know, facing these, you know, you're in uh, the likes of Google and, you know, there's obviously a prestige around that. And as you said, you're young and you had a level of confidence. Have you been in situations where you felt, you know, the imposter syndrome or you were in over your head and... You felt I'm I'm not going to get through this, and uh, you know, and if if so, what were the approaches or advice or tools or just uh, mechanisms you used to, to succeed? I have always had the imposter syndrome. Um, at least I'm, I'm sure there's cases where I don't, but those stick out to me. Those moments where I feel like, wow, I'm in over my head or I don't get it. Or these people are smarter than me. And, and I think that the way that I continue to work through that is I look at, at the set of accomplishments that I do have and the lesson, I, it takes a moment of pause and to reflect on what do I actually know? And one of the benefits in being a recruiter is you talk to so many people and you learn that many of those people that are highly accomplished also have imposter syndrome. And so the biggest tool I have is reminding myself that that is true for most people. So if I'm in the room feeling that way, there's most likely at least one other person who's feeling that exact same way in that exact same moment. And yeah, there have been times to answer your question around, have I felt um, I can't do it or I'm in over my head? And when those moments happen, that's when I leverage the relationships that I have to ask for help. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that I see people do is try to do it all on their own. 
and the fear that if you ask a question or ask for help, that that somehow uh, validates the your internal suspicion that you're an imposter or makes other people view you as weak. And I have learned that that's not the case. People respect people who are, one, willing to be vulnerable, who are self-aware enough to know that there's something they don't know or they've hit a roadblock and they need help. And in terms of, um, I talk to to more junior people at times and, and mentor them, and they're afraid within their company that if they ask for help, that their boss will view them as less or less capable. And my answer is always, trust me, your boss wants you to get it done. And for the you know, one full day of work you're spending banging your head against the wall, trying to figure it out on your own and you can't and you're afraid to ask, they would much rather you come into their office so that they can tell you whatever it is that you you need in order to accomplish the task at hand rather than wasting the time. Mm. Does that answer your question? Oh yeah, totally. On on both levels, I think it really does. And what, what, I, what I always think of there in a couple of was comparisons to it is that you know in situations where you feel imposter syndrome or god i'm not going to be up for this or people will figure out that i'm not capable i always say well you got to that point so you've obviously overcome multiple instances of it before and chances are you're going to overcome this one odds are you are because you know you've got this far which is always good and i think as well on the, the asking for help piece people love to be um asked for advice because it makes them feel better because they yeah. think this person values my opinion that's nice it, it's a bit of flattery in a way you know so i always encourage people to to do that as well and and sooner rather than later for sure so totally totally agree with that can i ask would you would you be somebody that might overthink things <laughs> yes, Rob, I would say I definitely tend to overthink things. And that's something that I work on is trying to, you know, simple is usually better. And there's no need to overthink everything. But yes, I would say I am one of those people. Are you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I didn't mean to, you know, go into, uh, I didn't want to bring it, this into a therapy session or anything like that. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I do think it's interesting of, of the you know 200 people I've interviewed and in my previous work I've interviewed hundreds of people for jobs and um, I notice similar patterns and I think obviously if you're if you have, if you suffer from imposter syndrome or self doubt but are driven to keep moving forward overthinking is a natural attribute that connects to that um, and you know I think I always reflect on th- those characteristics as positive you know I, I try to flip imposter syndrome to be a good thing because it mm-hmm. makes me never feel like I've made it or if, if if I did then I'd never go any further you know so I think we just need to to look at it reframe it and look at it from a different perspective I, I think has you know advantages I agree completely I think it's the the very thing that 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 imposter syndrome is is part of the overthinking and is part of a few other things that I think make us good at what we at what we do and equally is can cause some suffering. And so it's that that balance. I agree with you. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't I wouldn't have gotten to where I am today. I wouldn't have been as driven. So there there's that. But at some point, I think 
there does have to be that bad. You have to get reach that point where there's more of an equilibrium and you're not just driven in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that brings me really nicely on to, I suppose, the candidates that you position into C-suite posi- roles, right? And and maybe some of the characteristics that you see in, in them. Do you see, you mentioned vulnerability and, you know, do you see doubt or, or are you able to, to spot, like, I suppose, the question more is like, are those characteristics allowed in a in a, a C-suite level candidate? Are, are, do you see a shift over the last number of years because organizations are more purpose driven now and and are, you know, connecting in more with individuals who are self-aware and self-controlled? Just very fascinated about what makes up a, a good C-suite or an excellent C-suite member now from your experience. So you can take it in whatever direction you want. Well, generally, I think the answer is yes, that um, companies are, you know, it's it's less formal. There's the less rigidity. There's much more acceptance of the whole person being at work, meaning with the vulnerability, with, you know, with all of these very human characteristics. I think that is true. I work specifically for the client to find a particular person for a particular role. And each of those clients are very different. Mm -hmm. And so there I have some clients where they are very aligned to their core values as a company. And for instance, I have a client right now who um, one of their core values is vulnerability and they they are looking for candidates and we're, we're recruiting a, a chief product officer right now. And they want that in people. And in fact, when candidates show up in the interview process and have this very professional wall up, they're immediately turned off by that and they're, they're looking for that. Yeah. That, it would be an inauthentic view of the person, I suppose. Yeah. And now having said that, there are other clients where, you know, that isn't a core value. And they're in in broad strokes, I would say that, yes, candidates at the C-suite need to be authentic and that there is overall an overarching desire for for authenticity, integrity, honesty. And in the interview process, generally speaking, all all clients are looking for those things. But to the degree, uh, depends on the client and the industry. Mm-hmm. Certain industries are very old school and are much more buttoned up. And there is a certain level of kind of old old school defined professionalism that kind of lacks that human vulnerable piece. And so that's different. But I would say for the most part, companies want whole people. Mm-hmm. with flaws and everything because they want the authenticity means there's a level of self-awareness and self-awareness means that there is a level of competency because you know where you're strong and where you're weak and you're willing to talk about those things that there that speaks to leadership and your ability to participate on a leadership team and to lead others mm-hmm. and to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing any characteristics or traits or competencies emerge maybe over the last year or more that you've never you, you never saw before that are are becoming more popular and probably some of the ones you mentioned but any 
really and i'm not saying for every industry but certain ones that that are um honing in on comparable to vulnerability i suppose any anything coming up there at that level nothing new no i i think that there's been a consistent for the last 10 years or more um analytical people that are across every every function is the, the orientation towards understanding data and how to leverage data to make decisions in all functions. Mm. And so an example of, of this would be in, in HR, for instance, um, human resources leaders have gone, there's gone, a, there's been a transition from, it was a function that previously didn't have a lot of technology tools available. And similarly to how this happened to marketing, as companies developed software and technology to support HR, it meant you could measure HR, you could measure employee satisfaction, you could measure performance, you could, you had access and insight into all of these metrics that you didn't have before. And that then made HR leaders have had to become more numbers oriented to simplify it, you know, and know how to interpret data and get the data that they need. And that skill set, I saw that happen with marketing. Marketing, so basically you're now able to measure the effectiveness of your marketing function. You can measure the effectiveness of your HR function. And that by default means you need leaders in those functions who are analytical and data-driven. And so that has been kind of an overarching trend over, you know, the re- the last 10, 15 years. Mm, interesting. And I, I guess that data-driven mindset plays into the IQ of a of an individual more than obviously the, the EQ side, the emotional intelligence side. And from my experience that uh, both of them rarely come at height together there there's either one or the other the good thing about the iq if it's high you can develop the eq whereas developing iq is harder but obviously at a c-suite level coming in you would think they're pretty polished and at that well-developed level already well i think what you're describing i think that's the difference between a c-suite leader or, or even at a vp level the the difference is at you you have this analytical mindset, but you have a high EQ. And when you have that, and I would say the EQ is usually, um, it's heavier on the EQ side in that to be elevated to a leadership position at the VP or C-suite, you have to have the EQ part. If you don't, then you're, you're not, you're pretty much a, a you're going to tap out at a director level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I definitely uh, agree, but and I'm all in on the emotional intelligence side. And, and as I said, a lot of it, the good news is that it it's a practice. A lot of it is is habits. It's a lot of it is is you know experience and and working hard at it that that can bring you uh, bring you forward with that. Um, so I did want to talk about your your blog post and what we were talking about earlier about how to focus if we're looking at hiring women into the C-suite. And that's a speciality, I guess, of, of, you, of yours. So maybe talk to me about just that whole challenge and I suppose, is there ways that women can get to that level easier, uh, advice around that, maybe things that we're not thinking of when we when we hear about that? 
Well, in, in regard, so this all, the blog post you're mentioning came about because I've been working a lot with clients who want to recruit a women into a C-level role. And recently it was a chief financial officer that instigated the, the blog post. And what came up for me in the conversations with the client was a few things. One, it's an all-male leadership team, and they know the value of having a diverse team, and they wanted to do that. And the open position they had was for a chief financial officer. So to them, it makes perfect sense, hire a CFO. It also meant that they wanted a proven CFO, not an up-and-comer, someone that was already at the C-suite. So when you think through this, I, I appreciate so much the mandate from boards to their to their companies, from VCs to their portfolios to build C-suites inclusive of, of women. And I, I appreciate it. And that's fantastic. But if you're doing that and you're saying, I want a current C-level executive, then you're not creating more opportunity for women at the C-suite. You're stealing other women into your company who have already made that, who have already gone through that journey. Mm-hmm. That to me is, is not increasing the options for women or creating more pathways to the C-suite. I think a real impact is to set an HR strategy at every level of your organization specific to recruiting women into your organization identifying the the key women, the top performers, and putting them on a strategic pathway to elevated positions. There are, you know, large companies that have done this well. GE was historical in that they have a leadership program where you identify your top performers. Many companies have done this, the larger ones, and you put them on a rotation. You know, you give them a taste of every every function, every part of your business, and you elevate them. That's what's needed to make a real impact in creating more opportunity for women and the diversity at the C-suite is pathways to get there. That's how you increase the opportunity, just trading CFOs between you and your competitors or other adjacent companies isn't actually doing anything for for women. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's where that blog post had come from. And then in addition to that, it's about making sure. So when when I'm working with a client and they let's say and this has happened where they're they aren't looking for an existing C-level executive. They're looking for a VP who's ready to step up into that role. Then you have to consider, so you've got a woman who we know it's more challenging for women to get into a more senior level role anyway. So she has established herself at her current company. She's built the credibility. She knows the leadership team. She knows her voice is heard. And you want to recruit her to your company how are you going to make make it clear to her that she will have credibility, that she will have a voice on this leadership team that is likely men? Are you Have you thought through what that's going to mean in the interview process? How are you going to establish that? How are you going to make this a, uh, of course, any job change is, is taking a chance, but less of a risk to her? Mm-hmm. given that she had to work so hard to establish herself in her current role. And I see clients not thinking about that. 
Mm-hmm. No, it absolutely makes total total sense. And as I was saying to you offline, a lot of the work I'm focusing in on my day job is around um, diversity, equity, and inclusion attracting. But I think more so uh, to your point, including and promoting and uh, you know identifying candidates that can move up as the high performers. That you have almost a you know a five year plan to get x amount of females to the c-suite level in your organization rather than flipping a switch overnight because it isn't adding it's it's just trading and that makes total sense in your experience then have you seen measures and and metrics and kpis because we talked about how you know measuring is very you know that the thing that um are useful in helping organizations achieve their you know strategic objectives uh, and and be able to bring underrepresented groups further along is there anything that you've seen that works or that you see some organizations implement you know i don't have that level of visibility okay. most most of the time on a rare a rare occasion a client will share with me their their data but i don't i don't have that kind of insight normally okay no no that's that's fine i suppose just from talking with clients then is there any other um criteria or you know areas that they want when you're working with them to to look to hire in talent or i presume do you also focus on um the promotion of talent within organizations is that something you would look at i don't i don't focus on that it's always external it's always recruiting somebody new into the organization Uh, And it's usually for a variety of reasons. One, either the company is undergoing change of some sort or scale, and they need to bring somebody in with that particular set of experience, or somebody has left and they're replacing them. Uh, Or it's an earlier stage company, and they never had that role before, and so they're recruiting their first COO or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, that that sounds fair. Um, I guess just to kind of maybe move more into, you mentioned around the processes and you know how how they've changed or or how they can be very valuable when you're going through the the recruitment process. Is there any kind of key callouts there that if somebody is looking to apply for a senior position or or a position in an organization at a C-suite level that they should be aware of things that they the do's and don'ts I guess that give them a better chance to you know get their foot in the door get to the first interview that sort of experience that sort of advice well there's a lot there to talk about from you know so from the very beginning if if you are looking to make a change the first place to start is always within your network And talking to the people you know at companies that you think are interesting or people that you know that are investors or board members or that have access to a number of different companies or a large network and letting them know that you're interested in in looking at having those conversations because so often it it is about who you know Mm -hmm. and you bypass the, the kind of process of having to submit a resume online, you know, you want to be walked in the door either through a recruiter or through somebody, you know, ideally. So that's the the first thing. And when considering how to present yourself, always start with how is success measured for you today? And that's, that's really 
the core of all of, of everything of where what everything else comes from is from how are you how is success measured right now and being able to articulate that in a conversation with a recruiter or a CEO or a board member is talking intelligently and with examples about what success looks like the other piece i think that um instead of trying to tell you everything in in one session i'll highlight the things that i think are sure. most impactful and and one of them also is the art being able to articulate what you're really great at and what you're learning about and the reason this is important is going back to that vulnerability piece it's it ties into self-awareness and so all clients and recruiters want to understand how self-aware you are and if you can either answer the question directly if someone asks you know what what are your strengths what are your weaknesses what are you working on or you're offering that up and say you know and when i've reflected on my experience at blank company and proactively saying you know what i didn't do right that i would do differently is this that builds trust you're you're showing that you're willing to be vulnerable you're also displaying that you are aware that you're thoughtful you're introspective and that you have taken action to improve these things that's one piece that i think um if i was going to say what people don't do well in an interview process it's that and the ones that do do that well stand out mm. um and in a in terms of good habits always send a thank you. You know, I mean most people will, many people still don't. Always send a thank you. Don't be afraid to follow up, especially if you're dealing with a partner at an executive search firm like myself. I try to be very good at um, keeping in touch with each candidate in various searches and letting them know where we are in the process. But when you're proactive, it does it shows a level of interest accountability, you know, that you have had an open-ended conversation and you're following up. Um, I think those are, are really important. Always take time to stop in a conversation and be conscious of, are you talking the whole time? That's probably one of the things that comes up with every client. There's always one candidate that didn't stop talking through the whole interview. And the client was like, I didn't get a get to ask a single question yeah and that's kind of a so fine line i'll pause there <laughs> that's a fine line between being passionate about what you're talking about and being uh, a rambling you know mess i suppose and and just you know filling the the dead the space com completely with your own uh with your own conversation in, in a way um interesting if I know networks are very important and reaching out and connecting and say if you're maybe not well connected, how do you, as, as maybe one or two kind of examples, how could somebody get found? You know, if, if you're a headhunter or how do you get headhunted? Um, obviously, LinkedIn is a, probably a great place to do it, but is there any kind of, you know, succinct ways that can make you more noticeable? I think that these days, you know, when I started recruiting, it was before LinkedIn. <laughs> so things have changed. I would say LinkedIn is the primary uh, resource that all recruiters use. And so absolutely making sure that you have a LinkedIn profile with information, you know, not just company, company without any 
you know, give us, give us a couple bullet points of what you're doing. Make sure your title is accurate at the base, at the baseline mm-hmm. that, that absolutely um, to get noticed by a recruiter. Oftentimes I get, I get hundreds of inbound and, and I can't respond to all the people reaching out. There has been maybe one in a thousand people that I actually have a, a search going on that that person would be appropriate for. Most of the time I don't because as a recruiter, you're, you're looking for a needle in a haystack for a particular client. So when you do outreach to a recruiter, cold, you and it's and the reason why you may want to do that is because you will end up in that firm's database mm-hmm. and then you will be searchable for future searches but don't expect to get a response and don't take it personally send your resume don't send a big email cuz it's not going to be read and instead include a couple bullet points so that the person usually if it's my assistant is looking at that email what she wants to see is there's a resume attached and in the body that I email, this person has included their title, the current company, uh, and what they're doing in a few bullet points and where they're located and if they're open to relocation and leave it at that. When you're not dealing with a recruiter and you're building out your network, joining particular groups is a good idea, seeing who those people are. Um when you look at the LinkedIn open jobs, find the companies and the jobs you're interested in and then find the people working at those companies and see if you're either connected directly or indirectly. And if indirectly, ask for an introduction. Uh, that's always a, a the first place that, that I would start. And to get recruited, you do have to fill in your LinkedIn profile you would want to include contact information so that there's a way for recruiters to reach you outside of LinkedIn. And I think that there's a little toggle that says, you know, if you're open opportunities or not for recruiters specifically, click that on. Yeah. And when you have the opportunity to participate in any um, networking events or like Zoom roundtables or fireside chats, do so. So, for example, on the the chief product officer search that I'm leading right now, one of our candidates is does a lot of speaking events and is always hosting on like an event or it's meetup online product mm-hmm. workshops. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're in product or whatever function you're in, look for industry leaders that are doing those kinds of things. And participate Mm -hmm. because then you'll have an opportunity to meet that person who, if high profile is being contacted by recruiters all the time, and they can then just funnel those inbound outreaches from recruiters directly to you. And you've got somebody else who you're top of mind for Mm -hmm. either on their team or, or another company. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. it's a strategic approach to it. I've talked to people in the past in coaching sessions and stuff where they've had a scattergun approach of, you know, submitting their resume to 50 jobs on, on LinkedIn with, you know, just as an exercise of uh, seeing what might stick. And, you know, it, you probably become more deflated or demoralized because you don't hear back from any of them when maybe none of them were a real fit, you know, so. You know, talk about process, Rob. One of the things that I've, uh, 
I've always told people is you set up a Google spreadsheet or a spreadsheet with all of the outbound who, you know, what was the company? What was the position? What's the link? When did you send it? And then go down that list and find all the people that you know or could get connected to that are at those companies and add them to the spreadsheet, send, you know, outreach to them, email them, log the date, and then circle back in in a week and do it all again. (laughs) Because the reality is the squeaky wheel does get noticed. And if you're trying to get in front of a particular company and keep in mind, they've got hundreds of inbound resumes. They may not have gotten to you. There may have been a junior level person looking through resumes and didn't see the magic that is you where maybe you are the right fit. And so keep, try again, go to a different person. And eventually somebody is going to get back to you. Uh, That's how I would manage my own search is a very structured, keep track and follow up. People dismiss the first the first attempt at getting in touch with them. You have to do it two or three times these days, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, good good advice. Uh, definitely good stuff to to take away. Um, Vanessa, I think we're coming up to towards the end of our conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to all the the experiences you've been able to share. Um, was there any areas that we didn't touch on that you feel? Uh, useful to share, important that people listening might take something from from your experience. The one, the one thing I would add is that always investigate an open door. You know, things in my in my my career path was about walking through doors as they open, taking introductions as they happened, um, being open to opportunity and not closed off. So. The, if we're talking about career and maybe in life also, I would say always pay attention to what's opening up around you and investigate. Don't dismiss things so quickly because so much I think in our in our lives and all of us happen that way. You know, it, it's timing and opportunity. And so be open to those things. Mm-hmm. And that ties nicely in with the self-awareness, right? If, if, uh, if you don't have it, you know, you, you can develop it, but the more you develop it, it's like that self-fulfilling prophecy, the more things you notice around you and more potential open doors as well. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I'm all in on that. Um, Vanessa, how can people find you and learn more about you and connect in with you if uh, if they have questions or potentially are, you know, the, the hottest candidates on the planet that like to you know work with you? That's that's right. Yeah, you can reach me at vanessaklein.com. That's my website. Or you can go to caliber1.com. The tricky thing is my name is spelled very differently. It's V-E-N-E-S-A-K-L-E-I-N. And I challenge you to find anybody else who spells Vanessa that way. But you can find me that way or on LinkedIn. Perfect. I'll put a link on that. And I know what it uh, feels like to be have a name that's spelled a bit strange. My surname is O'Donoghue and there is normally a G in that, but in mine there isn't. And as a result, I get, you know, I'm, I'm missing a lot of emails uh, as a result over the last two decades, probably. But um, all is good. Yeah, Vanessa, it was lovely to talk to you um, and, you know, really appreciate your time. I know it's a it's a busy time um, and you're juggling a lot there, but uh, uh, you're in, in sunny LA, so I'm probably a little bit more jealous about that than being in wet and cold Ireland tonight. But hey, uh, I'll hopefully get this out in the next uh, few days. I look forward to sharing it and uh, it was great to connect. 
Thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate you having me and stay warm. I'm and definitely safe. <laughs> Yeah, you too. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. 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 Hey, folks. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone. Pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. Any will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free and interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy, but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.